Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 29 for the first quarter of April 2012. The topic I'm going to talk about today is whether or not the asteroid belt could have been a planet. And I should know that this is separate from the exploding planet idea that some people have that I will talk about in a future episode. In fact, the next episode. The purpose of this one is to set the stage for what we know about the solar system's formation, dynamics, and the asteroid belt itself. Hoagland's and Tom Van Flandern's ideas will be discussed later. I should also point out that this is the first explicitly requested listener episode requested by Carl Mamer, the conspiracy skeptic, and my official North American media representative. If you're not quite sure why I call him the latter title, stick around for my first episode on Billy Meyer and Michael Horn in about a month. So as I said, this episode is going to be about the asteroid belt in general, non-conspiracy misunderstandings that it could have been a planet just the general misconception in some of the history. Now, looking back through the vast library of episodes that I have out now, I'm drawn to episode 13, The True Story of Planet X, where I talked about the discovery of Uranus and Neptune, and then Pluto. As I had said in that episode, until about 1781, the solar system was known to consist of Earth, Venus, Mercury, Sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. Also the Moon, and some other moons, and some unexplainable and unpredictable comets. That was it, and it wasn't until William Herschel observed a ball-like object that he described as a non-star-like and moving among the fixed background stars. Herschel's discovery was of the planet Uranus, and it set the stage for an intermediate discovery in 1801 that I left out of that episode for streamlinedness' sake. It was on New Year's Day, January 1st, 1801, that the Italian monk Giuseppe Piazzi, and again, apologize to anyone who speaks Italian, noticed a faint dot of light that also appeared to move across the sky, a little faster than Herschel's planet, but it was more regular than a comet. He observed it about 20 times for 41 days, and then he got sick and the object was lost. Pierre-Simon Laplace dean of the French astrophysical establishment, said that from the limited observations of Piazzi, the orbit could not be calculated. The young whippersnapper Carl Friedrich Gauss of Germany, who was 24 years old at the time, or 24 years young, said, and I paraphrase here, that Laplace's conclusion was bollocks, and he could compute an orbit from only three observations. He did so, and he successfully predicted where the object would next be found on the sky, and that was on December 31st, 1801. But I am skipping a little bit of history here, something that many of you may have heard of called the Titus-Bode Law, originally proposed by Johann Daniel Titus in 1766, and refined and brought back to the limelight in 1772 by Johann Elbert Bode. The law is an empirical law. That's a basic geometric progression that roughly gives you the distance between the known planets at the time and the Sun in units of Earth-Sun distances. It does this reasonably well, with errors averaging somewhere around 2%, except for Mars, at just over 5% off, and Saturn, 
at just under 5% off. When Uranus was discovered in 1781, it was found that the Titus Bode Law held for it as well, being off by only 2.08%. The problem for the solar system's structure, though, is that the Titus Bode Law predicted that there should be a planet somewhere between Mars and Jupiter, but no one had found it yet. If you'll permit me a small aside in my small, non-linear rambling through history, some of you who know about this law may be jumping ahead and waiting for me to say that it's just an empirical relationship, and there's absolutely no reason why anyone should have used it back then, much less today, to argue for a missing planet in the location of the asteroid belt. While that may be true, there is absolutely no physical reason for it to work, and it doesn't work, there are many empirical laws in physics and astronomy and other fields that do work, and we don't really know why. A good historical example brings us once again to Kepler, who I seem to bring up in almost every episode. He's just that important. Or you can disprove most modern astronomical pseudoscience today with stuff he knew 400 years ago. Either way, Kepler's three laws of planetary motion were completely empirical. He did not know why they worked, or why they were. They just were. It wasn't until Newton came along years later and gave them a theoretical framework that we then knew why they worked, and they work. Similarly, in electrodynamics, every physics student has to memorize Maxwell's four equations or laws. The second one is commonly said in physics parlance as div b equals zero, which basically means that magnetic monopoles, objects or things with just a north or just a south magnetic pole, not the other one, don't exist. This is an empirical law, and we don't actually know if magnetic monopoles do exist or not. We've just never found one. If a magnetic monopole is discovered, then Maxwell's law will have to be revised, and it will be shown to have been wrong. My point in this aside is that one really shouldn't diss the scientists for the day for looking to the Titus Bode Law for predictive power. And when Ceres was discovered, and rediscovered in 1801, for astronomers of the day jumping on the idea that it's the missing planet predicted by the Titus Bode Law doesn't seem quite as crazy as it might seem today. It remained classified as a planet for about a half century, even though several other asteroids were discovered during that time. Once more and more asteroids, though, were discovered in that same region of space, and you know, it was found they all had a somewhat similar orbit, the group of objects were called asteroids instead. And that's about all the history that I'm going to go into in this episode. The point of all this is that Ceres was considered to be a planet, and there is a historic reason for why it was considered to be a planet, as well as sort of arguably a physical possible reason. In other words, the Titus-Bode Law. And there are still people today who want to use the Titus-Bode Law, which fails miserably to predict Neptune and Pluto, to argue that there really should have been a planet at the asteroid belt, and the asteroid belt once really, actually, really, really was a planet. But it wasn't. There are several ways to show why the asteroid belt couldn't have ever been a planet. The first way to look at this question is to look at the mass involved in the asteroid belt, a concept that's often difficult to keep in mind or to remember, and 
I forget this all the time, is that mass does not scale linearly with diameter. Mass goes as the cube of the diameter. This is important because you can look at the biggest asteroid, Ceres, and think, okay, this sucker's about a thousand kilometers in diameter. You can then look at the second biggest asteroid, Vesta, which is currently being orbited by the Dawn probe, and think, Vesta's around 500 kilometers across. The third biggest asteroid is Pallas, and that's also around 500 kilometers. And then the fourth biggest is Hygieia, possibly Hygieia. Um, again, anyone who speaks Greek, sorry. It's highly ellipsoidal at about 530 by 400 by 370 kilometers. If you add all these up, putting them together, you get something about 2,500 kilometers across, which is over half as big as our own moon, with the moon being about 3,500 kilometers across. Throw in all of the other stuff, and you should be able to get an object that's at least as big as the moon. It seems reasonable, until you remember that mass goes as the volume, which goes as the diameter cubed. So Ceres, with a diameter of about 1,000 kilometers, is only about 27% the diameter of the moon, which has a volume of only 2% of the moon. Vesta is half of Ceres' diameter, and so it's going to have a volume that's only one-eighth of Ceres, or only about a quarter of a percent of our moon. Same with the other two largest asteroids, and then you just keep getting smaller and smaller and smaller really, really fast. So in reality, if you add up all of the asteroids, even accounting for the trillions of tiny ones that we haven't discovered yet, the total mass and volume of that super asteroidal object is only going to be a few hundredths of our moon. Under most reasonable definitions of a planet, this is not what one would consider to be a planet, even if all of this stuff were in one object. A second way to show that the asteroid belt could not have been a planet is that at least the two largest asteroids themselves are differentiated. This means sort of what it sounds like. Differentiated is when an object has differed itself. It's separated somewhat into different layers based upon density. You can think of a vinaigrette salad dressing that's been left sitting too long as having differentiated. Earth is differentiated because it has a core, mantle, and crust. So is the moon. So are Ceres and Vesta. Both of these asteroids have differentiated, meaning that they formed, and they formed by themselves, and over a few million years, the heavy elements sunk to the core, while the lighter elements rose closer to the top. This could not be the case if these are chunks of an exploded planet, but I'll talk more about that in the next episode. A third way to look at why the asteroid belt is not the result of at least a recent broken-up larger object is the dynamics of the asteroids in the belt as a whole. One person, Barbara Hand Clow, whose website is titled Journeys Through Nine Dimensions and has a book out called Catastrophobia and is a 2012 person in general, claims that the asteroid belt was from a planet that exploded roughly 11,500 years ago. But the asteroid belt used to be a planet until 11,500 years ago. And so that planet was, was it exploded that planet. And the fragments of it, as this thing, as this fragments of the supernova kept coming through the solar system and approaching the sun, it was carrying a lot of debris. Tom Van Flanderen, who I'll talk about much more extensively in the next episode, as well as have clips from him, 
believes that the asteroid belt was actually two planets and some moons. One exploded 250 million years ago. The other planet exploded 65 million years ago, and then one of the moons exploded 3.2 million years ago. The remaining moon is Mars. Anyway, the asteroid belt's dynamics tell a completely different story. As I mentioned in episode 23 on Zachariah Sitchin, the asteroid belt is dynamically stable over long periods of time. It's an evolved system that's not going to look significantly different in a billion years. And it won't look significantly different if you go back a billion years. In fact, there are families of asteroids that travel together, and based on their orbital elements and how spread out they are, we can calculate when each family broke up from a single parent asteroid. Many of these date to hundreds of millions or even billions of years ago, as in not the entire asteroid belt dating to 11,500 years ago. Nor 3.2 million years ago, nor any of these other numbers that folks like to throw out. To claim it just means that they're either not aware of the physical evidence that says otherwise, or they need to be able to show that the basic physics used to reach these conclusions, along with thousands of other non-related conclusions, like you know how your phone works or something, because it's all the same basic physics. They need to show that this is wrong, and somehow they can explain everything that still does work, but how the asteroid belt doesn't work. It just kind of doesn't fit together. It's you know maybe magic, like Carl Sagan's invisible dragon flew through the asteroid belt and broke it up. A fourth and final way, at least for this episode, to show why the asteroid belt is not the remnant of a broken up planet. Is the basic argument that some of you are probably already familiar with, Jupiter. Most models of planet formation have Jupiter forming reasonably close to where it is today, and very, very early in the solar system's history. In a nutshell, the gravity of Jupiter would disrupt the formation of a planet that formed close by, or that would have tried to form close by. So you could think of the asteroid belt in a way as the planet that never formed. Even though it's not nearly enough mass for it to be made into a planet anyway, and for those of you who know about the Nice model, which is spelled nice, even though it's Nice because it's French, to stave off anyone emailing me a question about it, the Nice model also has Jupiter forming roughly where it is today. It's the outer gas and ice giant planets formed closer into the sun from where they are today. The argument for a planet not being able to form where the asteroid belt is today, due to orbital resonances with Jupiter, still holds, and that's about it. That's why the asteroid belt was not a planet. But that doesn't mean that we can't have a little more fun with this topic. To whet your appetite, or depending upon how you feel about such things, to warn you away from the next episode on April 8th, here's a little clip of some of what will be discussed. Uh, of the major planets, we have evidence that there were two explosions、uh, about four billion years ago, right back at the beginning. It's known by the astronomers as the period of the late heavy bombardment.、Uh, there were two other planets that exploded about one billion years ago, and those are the ones that formed all the new asteroids in the new asteroid belt out beyond Neptune and Pluto. All right. And、uh, then there was another pair of planets between Mars. Between Earth and Jupiter, one in the orbit of Mars, one、uh, midway out to Jupiter, 
that apparently exploded in the period from 250 million years ago for the uh, outer one to just 65 million years ago for the inner one in the orbit of Mars. Uh, the the 165 million years ago um, it, that was in the orbit of Mars, and it, it's the one that freed Mars, uh, that was a, a moon of that planet, and into its own orbit. But it that explosion did enough damage uh, that uh, that the Earth felt the impact of it too, and uh, that of course uh, on Earth things tra- changed drastically at that time. That's when all the dinosaurs died. This week's question comes from Donovan W. from Mobile, Alabama, USA, a.k.a. Ravenhull, on the SGU message board, who asks, Is there any evidence that Earth's magnetic poles are significantly offset or ever have been from the physical axis? That is, the physical northern magnetic point having been at a point below the Arctic Circle or some such thing. Is it possible for the magnetic poles to have any stable position that far off of the planet's rotational axis, with me assuming that the cores sharing the same axis? The answer is none that I could find. A concept that you generally learn in introductory electricity and magnetism classes, or general physics classes that freaks out AP test supervisors, is called the right-hand rule, or RHR for short, and when you see it written down. This is where you can use various fingers on your right hand that I'll link to in the show notes to figure out if a charge is moving in one direction, what direction the magnetic field will move, and which way the force from that charge and field will point. In this case, the right-hand rule shows that if Earth's core's spin is coupled with the surface, or at least coupled with the surface in terms of direction, then the resulting magnetic field will be perpendicular to it, in other words, along the spin axis. It's not exactly perpendicular, as discussed in episode 25 on the magnetic pole shift, because of the turbulence and other factors, but basic physics indicates that this should be nearly close. And, in my searching, I could not find any evidence that there had ever been a strong dipole field that was significantly far away from the spin axis of Earth, such as the north magnetic pole being at the equator. If anyone happens to know of any research that indicates otherwise, please let me know. However, that's not the case with the ice giant planets, Uranus and Neptune. Uranus' magnetic field is tilted by 58.6 degrees, and it's shifted by a whole third of the planet's radius. Neptune's magnetic field is tilted by 46.9 degrees, and it's offset from the center of the planet by half of Neptune's radius. The ice giant's magnetic fields are really weird. People who actually like E&M have looked at the problem and think that it might be characterized by how material flows in the planet's interiors in an ocean as opposed to the actual core. It could be generated by a thin spherical shell of electrically conducting liquid ammonia, methane, and water oceans, as opposed to the metal in Earth's core and the cores of other planets that have magnetic fields. Neptune's field is also unusual in the sense that it has a very strong quadrupole moment, as opposed to just the dipole or bar magnet that we like to use to simplify Earth's and other planets' fields. 
This means that it's really, really complicated. But people who like electricity and magnetism and fluid dynamics and them together, such as magnetohydrodynamics, are working to better understand what's going on. So that wraps up this Q&A segment. If you'd like to submit a question for consideration, please use any of the feedback methods available, though the easiest is probably just to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Related to last week's topic on Gilbert Erickson's Wormwood, I have a correction. This comes in from Richard in the show notes for the last episode, where I stated at the end of the main segment that Gilbert Erickson said that in May, June, or July of 2012, Planet X would get to the point of exchanging atmosphere with Earth, and that didn't happen. I misspoke. The show notes are correct. He said in 2010, not 2012. Since it's not May, June, or July of 2012 yet, you can't really know if that's happened. I unfortunately didn't catch that, though, in the extensive editing process that I go through for each and every delicately made episode. The next correction, or feedback, comes from Desert Fox, who wrote on my blog about the last episode also. It's a bit long. On planet Wormwood's density, I looked up the density of a brown dwarf. A brown dwarf is supposed to have a mass of about 70 grams per cubic centimeter. If Gilbert Erickson claims a mass of around 80 times that of water from Wormwood, that is close to the mass of a brown dwarf. Brown dwarf stars also have a mass similar to Jupiter, so that actually fits with his statement as well. Now, he probably just has no clue about what a brown dwarf is made of, however. Brown dwarfs, at least around 2006, were hypothesized to have iron rain. Might have been what he read to get the idea that a brown dwarf is made from iron. Sounds like a person who could spin these into some kind of volcanic activity as well. There are also supposed to be dust clouds orbiting some brown dwarf stars, so being pelted by debris does not sound implausible. There are also some jets of material, 2M1207 for example, which are being ejected from stars. Now, I agree that we should be able to see Wormwood by now, if it existed, and there is no Wormwood or any brown dwarf coming into the inner solar system in 2012, just stating that his statements could be spun to match with common scientific theories about brown dwarfs. One further item, he could probably have used the exact description of how brown dwarf stars are hypothesized to be, and it would have sounded just as amazing to his audience. My response to Desert Fox is that some of the points raised by Erickson are, taken one at a time, somewhat plausible. Gas can be compressed quite a lot. As I mentioned, the density of the sun is twice that claimed by Erickson for his Wormwood object. But metals are a different issue, and brown dwarfs are made almost entirely of hydrogen, gas, not iron. Similarly, brown dwarfs, just like any star, can be surrounded by a debris cloud. In our case, the sun's debris cloud are what we call planets, asteroids, comets, the Kuiper Belt, and the Oort Cloud. It's a case, as Desert Fox stated, where you can spin things to mean what you sort of want them to. He has the pieces there to make what could seem like a real object, but unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately for me, Erickson has no idea how to put them together correctly. This is why I think that I could make a much better conspiracy theorist than some of these other people. I actually know what I'm talking about most of the time with these topics. General to the show, I've gotten some feedback as a whole on the fact or fake segment with 
Gary S. from Israel, writing in to say, I love the podcast, but please don't add a fact or fiction section. First of all, it's a bit overused already, but most important, I always end up remembering the fiction answer and making a fool of myself. I don't need another opportunity for that. The conspiracy skeptic Carl Mamer agreed, as did a few other people on the SGU message boards. So for now, I will try to keep doing the puzzlers, but that means that I will probably be soliciting requests for ideas because these are sometimes really, really hard to come up with. But that brings us to the point in the show where I discuss a solution to what is the first and what may be the last fact or fake alternative. The first statement last time was, from a dark sky site, there are around 10,000 stars visible to the unaided eye. Here's a case where I should have actually looked up the answer first instead of relying on my own poor memory, for this is actually a false statement. If you have good vision and are in a dark sky site, you can see down to around 6th magnitude stars, where if you recall from the last episode about magnitude scale, the lower numbers are brighter. Counting up all of the 6th magnitude stars, they're conveniently somewhere around 6,000. But these are scattered throughout the entire sphere of the sky, so from any one time, from any one point, you'll be able to see roughly around 3,000. If you're in a very bright city, say New York, I was only able to actually see about two stars in the sky, and I think one of them might have been a planet. The second statement was, There is documentation as far back as the 1800s with people claiming ownership rights to the moon. This was a factual statement, although it's always possible that someone will find a document that goes back further in time. A third statement was, After Galileo discovered the four largest moons of Jupiter, he gave all the rights of their surfaces to the local funding source, the Medici family. This was a false statement that was sort of remotely kind of not really correct, in that he did call them the Medician stars in order to honor his funding source. It was only later that astronomers generally refer to them as the Galilean satellites, because he was the one who found them. But yeah, nothing to do with property rights. And congratulations goes to a not-chew for being the first to send in the correct answers. The not-chew of this week was Rick K of St. Louis, Missouri, United States. This week, with the main segment being on the asteroid belt, the puzzler is going to delve a bit into one of the lines of evidence that some people claim for the asteroid belt being a planet that exploded. That in itself is a topic for another episode. The next episode, in fact, but this can be thought of as a teaser, I suppose. It can also be thought of as you helping me to write the next episode. One supposition of exploding planet people is that Mars was a moon of this hypothetical planet V, or planet 5. An observation that they point to to support this is that half of Mars is heavily cratered, which was the side facing planet V when it exploded 65 million years ago. What is one of the many, many lines of actual scientific understanding about Mars that shows that this is not correct? Try to figure out one of the many answers and send it into puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I will sort of discuss it in a roundabout way in the next episode. In the next next episode, or the next odd quarter episode, 
I'm going to discuss some of the main visual evidence that people point to to support the Apollo moon hoax. So if you have any ideas for a good puzzler based on that, please send them in. By way of announcement, don't forget that you can find me online at podcast.sjrdesign.net, on Facebook under Exposing Pseudoastronomy, or personally, me on Twitter as Dr. That's D-R, Astro Stew, or the podcast on Twitter as Pseudoastro. And that wraps up this topic for the 29th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast in limerick form this time. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little bit at the same time. For more information about this show, podcast, or whatever, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast.sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this website or for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback, although I don't really edit this end stuff. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, or if you don't like it, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also, tell everyone that you can think of. Thank you.